So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, um, as always, uh, we rejoice in this new day. We're glad in it. We thank you for it, for another time to gather together with um, our brothers and sisters, um, with your children. And so I pray, Lord, that you would um, give us uh, understanding today. We pray for the blessing of your Holy Spirit, uh, that he would do what he has promised to do, um, to illuminate uh, his word to us, and that, Lord, you would use it um, to help us to grow in Christ-likeness, to encourage us where it's needed to convict us, perhaps, if there's sin, and, Lord, that you would um, be glorified in the things that we think about as we consider your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, we are at the midpoint of our study in the book of Job today. This the fourth week of what's a seven-week series, and so after today, we'll be halfway through. Um, we made up a lot of ground last week as we covered really the bulk of the dialogue from chapter 4 through chapter 27, and um, I know some of you may have in fact felt cheated because we went so quickly, um, just skimming across the surface as it were, um, but I think we are where we need to be. Um, because despite how much ground we did cover last week, we're still not going to finish the dialogue until next week um, because um, we're going to cover these few chapters today, and then next week we will finally hear from Job's fourth friend, whom we haven't heard from yet, Elihu. Um, but today, um, as we look at chapters 28 through 31, we are going to come to the, basically the end of Job's contribution to the dialogue in large part. Um, but before we get there, let's just briefly reflect on where Job's friends' counsel have, have left him, um, as we saw last week. Um, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar are done speaking, and what kind of contribution have they made? Um, what did we see last week very briefly? Well, what kind of counsel did they give? In a word, it was bad counsel. Um, these three friends of Job, their theology and worldview was such um, that they really could not help Job. And the way in which they counseled him was also not only incorrect, but it was also very cold and lacking in compassion. I think in some ways talking right past Job, not really even understanding Job's real plight. Um, because from their perspective, Job is suffering because of Job's sin. End of story. That's the only explanation that they have for why Job is suffering the way that he is. Their explanation is simply this inflexible doctrine of retribution. And so where has that left Job? Well, it's left him in a precarious place. Of course, the entire time throughout this dialogue, Job has been maintaining that he is innocent, um, that in fact he has done nothing in his life that would warrant this kind of tragedy to come upon him. Um, his conclusion, therefore, Job's conclusion, is that God is treating Job unjustly, that God is being unjust in the way that Job is suffering. And as a result of that, Job's decided that he wants to take God to court. He wants to bring litigation against God, to bring a legal action against God, so that at least as Job imagines, he wants to be vindicated. He wants God to ultimately say that, yes, Job you are in the right. 
And most recently, in chapter 27, um, Job made this dangerous oath. He made this oath of his innocence, making a vow, as it were, that he was innocent. And part of the oath that he made, as we saw last week, that he, um, the way that the formula for this oath works was that he would pronounce a curse on whatever he's sworn on if his oath turns out to be false. And of course, what did he swear on last week? We saw that he swore on God's own life. And so he was setting up with this oath the possibility that if his vow of innocence is proved to be false, well, then he is enacting a curse on God, which in fact is exactly what the Satan asserted that Job would do in the prologue. If God would take away Job's prosperity, then Satan suggested, Job's going to curse you to your face. And so Job is in a very precarious place here. He's set up kind of, as it were, this possibility that should Job's vow of innocence be proved false, he'll be placing a curse on God. So, with all that said, that's where we've been. Um, And really one of the things that I love about the book of Job is that it's this drama that unfolds. I think part of the genius of the book is that there's this suspense building. We kind of aren't really sure what's going to happen next. Job has these high points and these low points. And we realize that Job is also a very sympathetic character. And I hope that we're kind of pulling for Job. You know, we, we don't want to agree with everything that Job says. But we certainly want to see Job um, at least released from his suffering, delivered from his suffering. Um, and so perhaps it's with hesitation to continue reading to see what is going to happen to this poor soul next. So, chapter 28. That's where we're going to begin, and we'll spend more time in this chapter uh, this morning. And the reason for that is that chapter 28 kind of comes out of nowhere. Um, In the middle of this intractable dialogue, um, where, as I said, nothing's really been advanced, nothing has really, no real answers have been given for Job, and so chapter 28 appears, and, and Job um, is kind of, kind of like an intermission or an intermezzo for you more musical types, um, where Job seems to catch his breath, as it were. The fog kind of clears, and Job looks at his situation in an entirely different light. Um, and it might allow us to catch our breath if we were worn down by the dialogue last time. So let's see what we find. Job chapter 28, the first 12 verses. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where they refine gold. Iron is taken from the dust, and from rock, copper is smelted. Man puts an end to darkness, and to the farthest limit he searches out the rock in gloom and deep shadow. He sinks the shaft far from habitation, forgotten by the foot. They hang and swing to and fro far from men. The earth, from it comes food, and underneath it is turned up as fire. Its rocks are the source of sapphires, and its dust contains gold. The path no bird of prey knows, nor has the falcon's eye caught sight of it. The proud beasts have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. He puts his hand on the flint. He overturns the mountain at the base. He hews out channels through the rocks. And his eye sees anything precious. He dams up the streams from flowing, and what is hidden he brings out to the light. 
but where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Now, perhaps this first portion of this chapter is kind of a surprise in and of itself. Because what is Job doing? Well, he's describing mining. And where does this come from? Why is Job talking about mining here? This is actually the only description of mining in the entire Bible. And it's actually fairly technological in nature, at least so far as ancient mining technology is concerned. Because look at what he describes, verse 4. Um, he sinks a shaft. Man is sinking a mine shaft deep into the ground. And then it describes men hanging and swinging to and fro as if they're being lowered down into that shaft by a rope. It says in verse 5 that fire is used. We know that fires and furnaces are required to melt rock and bring forth the ore that's within. Verse 9, he talks about mountains being overturned at the base. Perhaps this is a picture of surface mining or strip mining more so than deep in the earth. Verse 10 and 11, he talks about harnessing water for the purpose of the miner's work, hewing out channels of the rock and damming up streams of water. And of course, what is the goal of all of this? Well, the goal in verse 11 is to bring out what is hidden to the light, to bring forth treasures from the deepest and darkest recesses of the earth. And I think certainly this work was dangerous. I mean, mining is still a dangerous work today. Imagine it in Job's day. Dangerous work, risky work, requiring lots of effort and skill. Um, but of course, the work was worth it because of what you got out of the mine. You get silver and gold, jewels like sapphire and iron that can be made into tools and hardware. So the work of mining requires great effort and great skill, but of course it comes with a great reward. And notice also that of all of God's creation, only man is the one that has put himself to this work of mining. Other animal creatures aren't even aware of what man is doing deep in the ground. As he describes that no bird of prey knows, no falcon's eye has caught the sight of it. As good as the bird of prey's eyesight is, he doesn't know what's happening under the ground. He talks about a proud beast or a lion in verse 8. So the most wondrous of God's creatures don't know what it is man is doing. They're entirely ignorant of what man is doing in this searching and finding minerals and ore in the heart of the earth. Man alone is able to do these things. And of course, we should note that um, in some ways, we should understand from Genesis chapter 1, from creation, from the cultural mandate, that man would have been expected to do these things. As God told man in Genesis 1.28 to fill the earth, subdue the earth, and have dominion over it, I think contained within that cultural mandate is the idea that man would put his ingenuity and skill to work in order to make good use of the earth's natural resources. So even from creation, it seems that this work, God was anticipating that man would do this. And then perhaps less well-known, think about Genesis chapter 4, it, we learn that from the fifth generation of Adam, there's this man named Tubal-Cain, and he's described as the forger of implements of iron and bronze. 
Perhaps he was the grandfather of all metalsmiths. And in order to make those bronze and iron tools, well, you had to get the metal to fashion it. And so perhaps Tubal-Cain was also the grandfather of all miners, as it were, getting the rock and ore out of the ground. So what's the point? Well, the point is, since very early in human history, man has been putting himself to this work of mining. Um, But in spite of man's great ingenuity and skill, despite of his resourcefulness and perseverance and risk-taking, and despite of his long history with this work, still something eludes him. There is still something that man has not been able to find. Thus the question in verse 12, but where then can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Let's keep reading the second portion of this chapter through verse 22 starting in 13. Man does not know its value, that is, wisdom's value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir and precious onyx or sapphire. Gold or glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned, and the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from, and where is the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, With our ears, we have heard a report of it. So what is Job doing now? Well, it appears that this hymn, this hymn to wisdom, is taking a turn. And we can see that perhaps Job's purpose is not really to magnify man's skill in mining, but really the purpose of this hymn is to address a question about wisdom. That is, where can wisdom be found? And before Job attempts to offer any answer in the positive, he first gives some answers in the negative um, of where wisdom cannot be found. And I think there's an echo back to the first portion of the chapter um, where he was talking about, you know, mining silver and gold and riches out of the earth. Well, now that we realize that wisdom is really in view... Job is saying that even those same precious things that man can mine out of the earth, he can't use those things to buy wisdom. And so verses 15 through 19 describe the surpassing value of wisdom. He talks about gold and silver and onyx, sapphire, glass, coral, crystal, pearls, and topaz. But none of these things, Job says, first of all, none of those can equal the value of wisdom Will you, uh, wisdom exceeds the value of all those things. And those things also cannot be paid in exchange for wisdom. You can't buy wisdom, Job says. But perhaps even more perplexing than that, that you can't buy wisdom, Job also seems to say that man can't even find it. Verse 13, it's not found in the land of the living The deep says, it's not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. And then verse 21, 
It's hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. And so it's not found, apparently, in the natural world. And so then Job ventures into the supernatural world, talking in verse 22 about Abaddon and death, the place of the dead. Perhaps Sheol knows where wisdom is. Well, they've only heard a rumor of it. They can't tell Job where wisdom is either. So, he repeats the question in verse 20, where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? Now, understand the dilemma that Job is putting in place here. He's leading us down a very circuitous path, but he's doing it deliberately. For thus far, yes, he's telling us that wisdom is beyond value and that wisdom cannot be purchased, but he's not just trying to say something about wisdom. He's really trying to say something about man. For a man who's able to sink these shafts deep in the earth, use courses of water and make great fires and furnaces in this work of mining, for all of man's ingenuity and cleverness and skill, still man is unable to locate this thing called wisdom. And that's precisely Job's point. It's beyond man's capacity to find wisdom. We can't find it. So then what are we to do? Well, naturally, we're to keep reading. Verse 23. God understands its way, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. When he imparted weight to the wind... And meted out the waters by measure, when he set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt. Then he saw it and declared it. He established it and also searched it out. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Now, if in fact we really were being kept in suspense in the first two portions of the hymn, the end of it might seem a bit anticlimactic. Perhaps we could see this coming, that God understands the way to wisdom and that he knows the place of understanding. Of course, that shouldn't be a surprise to us, but there may still be a twist that's coming here at the end. But before we get there, let's think about why it is or how it is that God knows and understands the place of wisdom. Job describes this in verses 23 through 27. And he's effectively, as he's looking at the natural world, he's effectively ascribing attributes to God based on the way that God deals with the natural world. Verse 23 says that God knows its way and he knows its place. So if man can't find wisdom and doesn't know where it is, but God knows where it is, I think we could take a step and say that Job is admitting the fact that God is all-knowing. He knows everything. Verse 24, he looks to the end of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens. So not only is God all-knowing, he's all-seeing Verses 25 and 26, describing the way that God deals with natural phenomena like wind 
and waters and rain and the thunderbolt. Since God is able to do this, I think Job is effectively saying that God is all-powerful. I mean, who else can impart weight to the wind? What does that even mean? And it may sound strange, but I think anyone that's seen the effects of a hurricane or tornado can understand that there is a weight and a force behind wind. And it's God that imparts that. And then in verse 27, he saw it, God saw it, and declared it. He established it and also searched it out. I think this word establish is pointing to creation language. God is the creator, Job is admitting. So all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, and creator, Job is saying that this is how it is that God knows wisdom's place. And then think about this. Is man any of those things? Well, that's an easy question to answer. Of course not. None of us are all-knowing or all-seeing or all-powerful or the Creator. And as Job is talking about the natural world here, we should also realize, I think, that Job is making an argument trying to connect the natural world, the natural order of the world, to the moral order of the world. We looked at this last time. Some of what Bildad said to Job was trying to connect the moral order and the natural order of the world But Job is taking a different tack here than Bildad did. For I think what Job is really saying is that since God is able and only God is able to do these things, to govern the natural order, the created order, the wind and the rain and the thunderbolts, God is able to govern these things. Then God and God alone is able to rightly govern the moral order of the world. That is the rule by which God's providence works, the way that God rewards goodness or punishes evil according to his prerogative, according to his wisdom. And I think Job's logic is is very good. If God is able to rightly govern the natural order of the world, then certainly God is able to rightly govern the moral order of the world. But it might also be surprising that Job is even saying this. Because all along in the dialogue, Job has been effectively saying that God is not governing the world rightly. He's been saying that, God, you're treating me unfairly. You're treating me unjustly. So why does it seem now that Job is kind of saying the opposite, I think, or drawing the opposite conclusion that God is able to govern the world in wisdom? Well, I don't know if I can really tell you for sure other than to say that this is just another illustration of the ups and downs that Job endures in the midst of his suffering. We should keep the picture in our mind that Job is still the emaciated man on the ash heap scraping his sores with a piece of broken pottery. The man who says this is still that same man, still suffering just as badly here as he did, you know, more than 20 chapters before. And I can't tell you why, but it seems that Job's faith here is at kind of another high point. He's saying some good and right and true things about God. Now, he has said some bad and wrong things about God, but here he's speaking rightly. And the conclusion to the hymn, 
here in verse 28. And to man he said, that is God said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Now, maybe this is where perhaps an unexpected twist comes in. Um, Because again, throughout the entire first two portions of this chapter, Job has been very clear on the fact that man cannot locate wisdom. He can't find it. Despite his ingenuity and skill, he can't locate it. But now he says that man does know what wisdom is because God has told him. So which is it? Can man not find it? Or actually man does know it because God has told him? Well, perhaps it is strange why Job has been taking us on this quest deep underground and in the sky and in the sea among the living and the dead telling us that man can't find wisdom, only now to say that man knows what it is because God has told him. Why is Job doing it this way? Well, we know that one of the themes of this book is wisdom itself. It's a case study in wisdom. And Job's course, stands alongside um, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes as wisdom literature in our Bible. But I think we shouldn't miss what Job is emphasizing here. Um, I think Job's perspective here is that wisdom is not a thing. It's not a thing that man can go find. It's not going to be found in a place. Now, Job isn't saying anything about knowledge, but let's step back for a moment and think about the difference between wisdom and knowledge. Now, knowledge can be found. Knowledge can easily be acquired. Knowledge can be purchased and bought, in fact. Anyone that's paid money for a class or college is effectively buying knowledge, right? But wisdom is not that way. Wisdom is not a thing, Job says. Not like that. I think Job is even saying that wisdom is not necessarily a thing that God gives to someone in the way that God gave wisdom to Solomon, for example. Or in the way you think about James 1 verse 5, where if anyone is lacking wisdom, then he should ask God for it, and God will give it to him. Now, Solomon's example and the example in James 1, that sounds like wisdom's a thing that God can give to someone, right? And of course, that is true. Yes, that is one dimension of wisdom. But Job is zeroing in on something else, that actually wisdom is not just that. It's more than that. And in some ways, it's simpler than that. Wisdom is a way of living. It's fearing God and turning away from evil. And I appreciate this emphasis because I think I'm often tempted to define wisdom too narrowly. To think that wisdom consists mainly in being able to make good decisions. Or to think about wisdom as something that just helps me to navigate the complexities of life. And yes, God gives us wisdom to do those things, but again, that's not all that wisdom is. It's not just about good decision-making. It's about fearing the Lord and turning away from evil. And I also think that Job's emphasis here should also um, be encouraging to us because looking at wisdom this way, I think, can tell us that a very unintelligent person 
can still be very wise. A person that might have no capacity for the complexities of life, well, he can still fear the Lord and turn away from evil, and he'd be very wise in doing so. So why is Job zeroing in on this dimension of wisdom, fearing the Lord and turning away from evil? Well, I think it's because Job knows that this is what he needs. You know, he's just sat through, we don't know how long this dialogue has taken, chronologically. We don't know how long Job has been suffering. I think it's more than days. We don't know, but perhaps it's weeks or months. And he's been hearing his friends tell him some pretty unwise things. He's been hearing his friends give him bad counsel. And I think Job wants to remind himself that he needs to and that he's able to continue to live a life of faithfulness even while he's suffering. And so what would that practically look like for Job? In his condition, how would he practically fear the Lord and turn away from evil? Or maybe we shouldn't ask the question of Job, but ask it about us. How would it look for us practically to fear the Lord and turn away from evil? Well, we know that the fear of God is a very common theme in the Scripture, and it simply is to be in awe or reverence of God's person and His ways. But I think more specifically, these verses we've read, 23 through 27, are actually helpful for us to flesh that out of how we practically think about fearing the Lord. I'm going to work backwards from verse 27 up. Could it be that fearing the Lord is to acknowledge that God is the creator and we are not? To acknowledge that He is powerful and we are weak? To acknowledge that He sees everything but we see so little? And to acknowledge that He knows everything and that we know very little? In some ways, I think that's a good description of what it is to fear God. And I think this chapter also is a foreshadowing of what Job will eventually hear from his fourth friend, Elihu, and also ultimately what God is going to say to Job when God finally responds. Ultimately, I think if Job can fear the Lord in these ways, then he will respond well to his suffering. And if you and I could fear the Lord in these ways then we could respond well to our suffering. This kind of God-fearing is what Derek Thomas calls the heart of Christian piety. And he says it's this, quote, It is submission and quiet, humble reverence to the God whose ways we may not understand. End quote. It's submission and quiet and humble reverence to the God whose ways we may not understand. I think there's much that Job doesn't understand in his suffering. I think there's much that you and I don't understand when we experience trial and hardship and pain. I think there's much we don't understand when we see others that we love experiencing trial and hardship and pain. Sometimes perhaps that's harder. But as Dr. Thomas has also said, in those situations, it's not important that we know or that we understand. 
What's important is that God knows and God understands and that we trust him. Verse 23 says it explicitly. God understands its way and he knows. Many times we will not know. We will not understand. But the scripture reminds us that God knows and God understands. And so we need to trust him. So fearing the Lord and then turning away from evil. What occurred to me is that maybe the turning away from evil is how we most clearly see what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 where he described Jesus as the wisdom of God. Jesus as wisdom incarnate, as it were. A man who only and ever feared the Lord and turned away from evil. If we also think about the fact that Jesus was a man whom great evil was perpetrated against. And of course, much more so than Job, Jesus was entirely innocent. Not in any way deserving of the suffering that he endured. I think of these words from 1 Peter chapter 2, talking about Jesus. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in turn, while suffering... He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. I think Jesus knew this dimension of wisdom from Job 28. Not that he knew it intuitively or was born knowing it. No, that we know that Jesus, as he grew up, he grew in wisdom, right? He learned wisdom. And how did Jesus learn wisdom? How did he learn to fear the Lord and turn away from evil? How did Jesus learn obedience? Well, we know from Hebrews chapter 5 that Jesus learned obedience through, through suffering, right? And this actually is a preview again to next week. When we hear from Elihu, we'll begin to see, is there something that we can learn from suffering? That really hasn't appeared yet in the book of Job. But we'll think about that next time. But I suppose I should also say, as we're thinking about Jesus and his obedience and his suffering, um, we must always remember that Jesus' life and his death, his suffering, it was for us. It was on your behalf. It was for you. And it could be that even in a group this size, there could be someone here who has not yet turned to Jesus in repentance and faith. There could be someone here who has not turned to Jesus, who is the wisdom of God. Perhaps you have not come to submit yourself to God's ways and to turn from your sin. Perhaps you're holding on to sin rather than turning away from it. Well, in that case, I would plead with you, turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus. Your sin will continue to pay bitter wages, ultimately, ultimately leading in death and an internal, eternal enduring of God's wrath against your sin. So turn from your sin. Look to Jesus, who is the wisdom of God. We think that we have wisdom. Lots of times I don't think we do. But look to Jesus who is wisdom and in whom is life and forgiveness. 
Come to him in repentance and faith. Stop trusting in yourself and lean into him. Cast yourself on him. Draw near to him. The scripture says that God is fully able to save all of those who will draw near to God through Christ. So, Job chapter 28 has led us down this path underground in the sky among the living and the dead. I think to teach us that wisdom only comes from God and that when we are experiencing trial and hardship, it's not important that we understand. We need to take refuge in the fact that God understands and we need to continue to fear him and turn away from evil. So it would almost be nice just to stop there. But there's a few more chapters that we do have time to look at. So after this kind of intermission, where Job looks at things so differently, Job kind of goes back to his old self. It's kind of disappointing. Not really. Uh, Chapter 29. I'll just read the first six verses. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in months gone by in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone over my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. As I was in the prime of my days, when the friendship of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, and my children were around me, when my steps were bathed in butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil, So Job is wistfully looking back to his life before the tragedy came upon him. Looking back so fondly at how wonderful his life used to be. Um, And other than mentioning in verse 5 and 6, he mentions his children. And I think kind of his material prosperity, talking about his steps being bathed in butter and the rock pouring forth oil. Really, most of his focus in these verses aren't on external things. And if you recall from last week, something else that Bildad told Job was that Job just return to the Lord and your life, your estate will be restored to what it was, which more succinctly is Job, return to the Lord and you'll get your stuff back. But as we knew last time, that wasn't really Job's problem. That wasn't really what had him so um, in turmoil internally that he lost his stuff. Look at what it is that he laments that he's lost in verse 2, as in the days when God watched over me. So he used to feel a measure of God's protection, but now Job, I think, feels that it's totally gone. Verse 3, when his lamp shone over my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. He believes that God used to illuminate his dark times. Now I think he believes he's just totally plunged into the dark without any light at all. And then verse 4 and 5, middle part of verse 4, when the friendship of God was over my tent and when the Almighty was yet with me. So in some sense, Job felt before all this happened that he was God's friend, that he enjoyed God's friendship, that he enjoyed fellowship with God, that God was still with him. But now he believes the opposite that God is no longer with him, God is no longer his friend, and if God is not Job's friend, well, then who is God? Well, we'll get to that a little bit more in chapter 30, 
But as we saw last week, wanting to bring litigation against God, I think Job believes that God is his enemy. And that's the conclusion that Job is drawing. So he believes that God has stopped protecting him, plunged him into darkness. God is no longer his friend, but I think his enemy. And then the rest of chapter 29, he continues to revel in how wonderful it was, particularly to have the community's respect and honor before the trial came upon him. And he especially delighted, apparently, in the respect he enjoyed among the community's elders. He apparently was one of those um, older, wise men in the community um, that would meet and make decisions for the community, provide leadership, and judge disputes. But I think this honor and respect is entirely gone from Job. He's lost his status in the community. Look at chapter 30, just verse 1. But now those younger than I mock me, whose fathers I disdained to put with the dogs of my flock. So in chapter 29, he was lamenting the fact that he's lost the respect of the community elders. Now he says it's even worse than that because even the young men are disrespecting me. Even the young people in the town are mocking me. But it is a bit odd, as much as that bothers him, he seems to hand out a pretty significant insult to these young people's fathers. He says, whose fathers I disdained to put with the dogs of my flock. Now, of course, Job wasn't an Israelite, so this wasn't a clean or unclean kind of animal. I mean, anyone that has a dog understands why a dog is considered an unclean animal. But even in Job's day... Um, dogs were not looked fondly upon. They were not man's best friend. And so to say that I wouldn't even put their fathers with the dogs of my flock, I wouldn't even put those men in charge of my dogs. The man who kept the dogs, I think, was even kind of lower than the man who watched over the sheep. And so Job is handing out a significant insult here. I'm not really sure why I'm pointing this out, other than, again, Job is kind of going kind of down to a dark place again. You know, should he really say this about these people? I don't think so. Skip down to verse 16 of chapter 30. 16 through 23. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have seized me. At night it pierces my bones within me, and my gnawing pains take no rest. By a great force my garment is distorted. It binds me about as the collar of my coat. He has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry out to thee for help, but thou dost not answer me. I stand up, and thou dost turn thy attention against me. Thou hast become cruel to me. With the might of thy hand, thou dost persecute me. Thou dost lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride, and thou dost dissolve me in a storm. For I know that thou wilt bring me to death into the house of meeting for all the living. So this kind of is Job's final lamentation, the lamenting the sorry state that he's in. And I think verse 21 
is kind of the summary thought. What is Job really saying? He's saying that God has become cruel to him and that God is persecuting him. And the conclusion he draws in chapter 23 is no longer hope-filled. He's no longer imagining that he might actually be vindicated before God. He's now imagining that God is just going to kill him. I will bring me to death, he says. So, as I said before, I think verse 21 is particularly clear that Job sees God as his enemy. Now, one commentator has suggested, and I think that it could be, could be the case, <clears throat> that if Job is seeing God as his enemy, Job could be seeing God as his adversary. And you think about the way that Satan was described in the prologue of the book. It was more of a title than an actual personal name. He was always described as the adversary, the Satan. And so could it be that Job is now saying that God is actually his Satan, his adversary? That perhaps God is the enemy of Job's soul. Now understand, God is not Job's enemy. He is not Job's Satan. But I think that's the darkness and despair where Job is in. I think it's wrong of Job to be saying these things. But this is the conclusion he draws. On to chapter 31. So one thing we haven't seen yet in these chapters is this litigation, this case that Job wants to bring, bringing God to court. Because again, he believes that God has acted unjustly towards him. Um, but it is in the language of litigation that Job's words find their dramatic conclusion. Because in chapter 31, Job makes one final avowal of his innocence, swearing his innocence, signing an affidavit, actually, of his innocence in an attempt to force God to finally respond to him. I think in at least 14 different ways, um, Job attests to his innocence. I think the verses are listed on your handout. Um, let's read them quickly. I'll just skip from one to the next. So chapter 31, verse 1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Verse 5, if I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hatened after deceit. Verse 7, if my step has turned from the way or my heart followed my eyes or if any spot has stuck to my hands. Verse 9, if my heart has been enticed by a woman, or I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway. Verse 13, if I have despised the claim of my male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me. Verse 16, if I have kept the poor from their desire or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail. Verse 19, if I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or that the needy had no covering. Verse 21, if I have lifted up my hand against the orphan because I saw I had support in the gate. Verse 24, if I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust. Verse 26, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon going in splendor and my heart became secretly enticed and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth. 
Verse 29, have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy or exulted when evil befell him? Verse 31, have the men of my tent not said, who can find one who has not been satisfied with his meat? Verse 33, have I covered my transgressions like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom? Verse 38 and 39, if my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I have eaten its fruit without money or have caused its owners to lose their lives. All of these ways, Job is saying that he's innocent. And of course, they're all kind of if clauses. So we know that there must be a then that's coming. We'll get to that. But in all these ways, he's claiming that he is innocent. And let's remember two things. All of these things are pointing back to Job's life before the trial came upon him. All of his protestations of innocence throughout the dialogue is always pointing back to how he lived before tragedy came upon him. And then again, we have to remember, secondly, that he's not claiming to be perfect. Job's never claiming to be perfect. He's simply saying that the overall shape of his life, he had done nothing to deserve what came upon him. And we have to agree with Job on that. In order to understand the argument of the book, we have to agree with Job that he's done nothing to deserve this. Because it's not just Job that says it. In the prologue, the narrator said it, and then God said it, that he was blameless, upright, feared God, and turned away from evil. So in all these 14 or so things, he's claiming moral purity in a number of areas. Um, He's saying that he's um, never been enticed to adultery, Um, He's always dealt justly and fairly with his slaves. Um, He's never taken advantage of the poor or the weak, orphans and widows. He says that he's never put his trust in his wealth. He says he's never gloated over his enemies. He says he's always been generous to friend and stranger alike. And he says he's always managed his vast land holdings with integrity. Now, Of course, these things that he's saying here, they don't really mirror the Ten Commandments, and they don't need to. Of course, he wasn't an Israelite, and the law hadn't even been given yet. But I think that what he's describing is really a catalog of those temptations that would have been most acute for Job, being who he was, the greatest man in all the East. Surely he would have been tempted to put his trust in his wealth, to take vengeance on his enemies, to mistreat or take advantage of the poor, and certainly probably tempted to have multiple wives and concubines. But he says, I have not done any of that at all. And he's so confident in his innocence, um, again, he offers a number of curses. This is kind of the then, all of these if statements. Well, then if he has done these things, well, then what should happen? Look at verse 8. Let me sow and another eat. Let my crops be uprooted. Verse 10, may my my wife grind for another and let others kneel down over her. Verse 22, let my shoulder fall from the socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow. And verse 40, let briars grow instead of wheat and stinkweed instead of barley. I'm just glad the word stinkweed's in the Bible. I'll just say that at least in the NAS. So Job is saying, if I have done any of those things, he's effectively saying, then my life should be ruined. 
My body itself should be wrecked. My arm should fall off. My land should not be productive. If his land is not productive, well, then there goes his wealth. And then this is really strange, but he says, if I've committed adultery, then I want my wife to be humiliated and violated. I can't defend Job for saying that. And verse 10 is, in fact, I think, as graphic in the Hebrew as it is in the English. But Job is pronouncing these curses. If he's done these things, then my life should be ruined. But of course, the whole time, he's been saying, I haven't done those things, and yet my life is ruined. And so he finally, verse 35 through 37, he says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Behold, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me, and the indictment which my adversary has written. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it to myself like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps, and like a prince I would approach him. So, here it is. Job has avowed that he is innocent, and he's signed his name. He's like, here it is, God, signed, sealed, delivered. I'm innocent. I'm demanding that you appear in court. That's what Job is doing. And so what happens next? Well, we have to wait and see. Will Job's case ever be heard? Will God ever respond to Job? We'll see what happens in the next couple of weeks. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the blessing of your word and what it shows us about ourselves and about you. And so I pray that you would impress these things on our heart. Uh, For Jesus' sake, amen.